where three women with names discuss movies that are about something other than a man. Paid in Puke is hosted by Amy Green, Christina Barr, and Jessica Baxter. It's also a spoiler-filled free-for-all. You've been warned. Okay, well, I learned how to say this guy's name today. The name of the writer-director of this movie. On today's episode of Paid in Puke, we're talking about Christian Papirniak's 2017 feature debut, Izzy Gets the Fuck Across Town. It tells the story of a former indie musician who is emotionally lost and convinces herself that she can fix her life if only she could stop the engagement of her ex to another woman. Uh, where are we? In my apartment. And how did I get here? I don't know. Who are you? I'm Izzy. No, 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 no. The party's starting soon. I need to get there. Do you know, break up their engagement? It's over. Nothing's over till we say it is. You're aware of how insane that sounds, right? Look, I'm sorry, but if you get there, it's on your own. Please! No! I need my fucking card, Nick. I paid you every time I have. Where are my fucking keys? Okay, here's your keys. But you ain't going nowhere. Oh, fuck! I need to get somewhere now. Can you help me get there? Where are you headed? Silver Lake and Los... Los Coles? Whatever. <clears throat> Let's go, girlfriend. You want I just gotta run a quick game. Can I give me a boost? Rabbit, he's harmless. You just rob your friend's place? Long and short answer, yes. Let's say you do make it to Roger, and what? All your problems disappear. You abandon me. I stepped off the Titanic before you an iceberg. What do you know, Izzy? Why did you move here? Why is your guitar still in the fucking box? You're a fucking mess. You're like this fuck, and now you want Roger to come in and save you. Damn! Every place I go today, there's some sign confirming for me that this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm coming for you. Papiriak came up with the idea for this movie. Apparently it was something he'd been tossing around for a while. And it started with the idea of a woman in a bloody tux riding in the back of a taxi cab. And he just was always coming back to that idea, and he was wondering who this person is and where she's going, what her motivation is. But then he also based the actual story when he started writing the script on a personal story. He didn't go into any more detail about that, but there's something there <laughs> that's personal for Izzy being sort of a proxy for Papyriac. So I first saw this movie when it came out in 2017 because I was asked to review it for Hammer to Nail and I was not expecting to like it based on the plot synopsis because it sounded like the kind of movie I don't usually like you know like a romantic comedy where there's like a sort of a train wreck woman who's trying to stop someone from getting married it just sounds like a movie that would usually star Katherine Heigl if it had a bigger budget or you know or Amy Schumer or something and I expected Izzy to be totally irredeemable and I expected not to like it but I was very surprised that was the first time I saw Mackenzie Day I was blown away by it and it's kind of stuck with me all this time and 
I suggested you guys watch this recently, and then I rewatched the scene at the party where she plays with her sister a couple times, and then it just kind of kept ruminating with us, and we finally are doing it for the pod. That was a very long introduction, but let's get into it. I just watched it last night for the second time. Like, yeah, you recommended it like a month or so ago. And I was thinking this time around that this is kind of like a standard rom-com trope that I usually hate. And I think also because it's usually gender-swapped. Maybe not always, but I feel like sometimes rom-coms when they're from the point of view of the guy, he's fixated on one specific woman that he wants to get back. With rom-coms that are woman-centric, it's usually they just want to find love. They're not obsessed about one specific person. Because she's kind of like this borderline stalker. I never relate to wanting someone back, you know? I have never wanted somebody back after the fact, never. Me either. It just means that I have not chosen well, maybe. Or is that like you have sort of perspective, things end for a reason, and usually if it's a deal breaker, then the deal is broken, why would you want to rekindle that? Right, or some people romanticize the past, maybe, which I think that's what, it, well, yeah. I mean, that's what's going on most with Izzy, and then also that she's in, like, a pretty shitty place overall. I like that she's, like, sort of just unapologetically kind of an asshole. This movie came up, I think, originally because we were talking about young adult, and I didn't like young adult because I didn't think Charlie Theron's character was redeemable in any way, and she kind of has a similar thing where she's trying to stop an ex from getting married. And throughout that movie, I was like, I don't feel sorry for this woman. I don't want her to be successful in this mission. I'm not enjoying this. And it's not that I've wanted Izzy to be successful in this mission, but there's just something about the character that made me want to see what would happen you know I just wanted to see this journey and I mean I guess it's probably a lot of that has to do with Mackenzie Davis and her charisma as an actress I just find her generally very riveting I mean I really do feel like she's a budding character actress she's got a lot of nuance in her and she's definitely going to be able to take that to a lot of different places I mean, there is something to her, like, they just kind of barely hint at, and I guess I wish that they'd gone more into this. The reason she has wine and blood, maybe hers, maybe someone else's, on her suit to begin with, she's a caterer, and she was defending someone. Someone was being a dick on the job, and she talks later to a fellow caterer who said, oh, I heard about you, you were defending a single mother. I don't know what that means, but that seems like a noble thing to do, you know? We're closed up here, the party moved downstairs. Huh? Fuck you, those bottles are still open. Excuse me, ma'am, are you invited to this? Yeah, here's my invitation. Dude, you're not security. Gibson, have your fork. I'm not getting fired. You see this jacket? Same thing, Einstein catering? You and me, we're practically fuck buddies, okay? Do you hate Elaine? Are you kidding, that fucking bitch? You know what I heard she did last night? Yes. The evidence is all over me. You're Izzy? Yes! Jesus Christ, you should've fucking said something! Tell me everything. Uh, let's just say the cards had me winning 10 to 9, alright? I love you. Sticking up for a moan like that? Here, have a goddamn triple. Whatever it is, it sounds like she was becoming a folk hero in a way. <laughs> so even though she's doing this very ill-advised thing throughout the movie, she's not a bad person. She's just in a very bad place making a lot of bad decisions. Right, yeah. I also put a note on that too when I was re-watching. There's kind of some telling, not showing. Whatever reason she has the wine and blood on her, she was sticking up for somebody to a shitty boss, I think. And then when she goes to her friend's house, the first place that she goes, she's been crashing at their place and has worn out her welcome. And the friend says something like, you were really there for me when I needed you, and that's why I've let you stay here. You pulled me out of the gutter when my sister died, so I've put up with a lot. A lot. 
I have limits. And then later when her friend that's marrying her ex also refers to the way that Izzy has been a good friend to her in the past. Our whole friendship, all those years of me going to bat for you and protecting you and sticking up for you, all of the fucking amazing, wonderful places we went, Iceland, South America, Australia, all of that is ruined. It doesn't exist. You stole that from me. They're trying to establish she's not just like this shitty because she is kind of shitty to people in general. You know, like with the caterer guy before he realizes who she is, you don't have to just walk up and give him the finger and say, pour me that. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Or like when she's smoking and the jogging lady makes a comment like, I'm kind of team nobody in that exchange. You don't have to blow smoke in someone's face. <laughs> it's called America. You're disgusting. <laughs> what a bitch. I also love that little lady right away. She's like, God, what a bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was kind of a battle between two not very nice people. Or they were definitely not being nice to each other. Right. But, yeah, I definitely, I mean, that whole, like, coughing next to someone smoking is so obnoxious. Like, we get it. <laughs> you didn't have to stand right next to her to begin with. Like, there's no reason for that. Why is she just standing there jogging in place next to her? <laughs> I enjoyed Young Adult, but this one, the character was so much more redeemable. They are very similar movies, but I really love the Izzy character a lot. She's definitely in a really rough place in her life. I love how the movie is broken up into these vignettes almost. It's like part of her journey is in different neighborhoods in LA and there are different characters that she meets along the way. Like I really liked, you can kind of like learn a little bit more about Izzy with those interactions that she has with those characters. Especially with Haley Joe Osment. She's just sort of the task rabbit person that helps him with odds and ends and the Elias Shawcat character, I loved their conversation about fate because Izzy's so locked into this idea that she is meant to be with Roger and she has to stop this engagement. And she woke up in this guy's house and he had a postcard of, uh, what was it? Providence. Providence, or, Providence, it Providence. Island. It was yeah. Providence. And that meant she's supposed to be with Roger and there are all these signs along the way. What's the address on Roger and Whitney's invitation? Providence Road? You're reaching. No, 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 no. Don't you fucking act like I'm batshit. You believe in this stuff too. I know you do. You told me tons of stuff like this about you and Tom. Her name's Alia Shotcat, right? Like, Alia Shotcat. I was wondering. I think it's well, Alia. Oh, okay. <laughs> Alia Shotcat. I love the contrast between her character and Izzy's. I love the quote. I found this guy on Tinder. It turns out he's a grade A chicken shit. And so I just decided to get wasted. And I passed out. There's no meaning in that. <laughs> Random fucking I chaos. <laughs> I, guess. I like the contrast between that and the idea of fate and how she was so married to that. She's supposed to be with this person and the way the story unfolds with Roger. The idea of there's only this one person for me. And I see what you're saying. I like how the movie debunks fate. I kind of yeah. love that whenever that happens in a movie. Like, one of the worst movies ever is that fucking movie Serendipity. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, like, any movie where they're like, actually, no. 
It is random fucking chaos. I mean, the universe is random chaos. Like, the fact that we're all here is so random. Yeah. And I like that she has a conversation, and then in the end, I mean, who knows what she's thinking when she's walking down the street, but it seems like maybe part of it is she's realizing that it is just what you make it. I mean, definitely there are things that happen to you, but there's a lot you can control, too. You can certainly control your behavior, and you can certainly control the way you react to situations. And she's kind of operating on the notion that nothing's in her control other than getting to this party. Now that we're talking about it, I did kind of wonder how she got to the point where she burned all these bridges with people and why all these people were helping her to begin with if she's such a mess. And it does seem like this isn't normally how she is, right? Like, she's in a very bad place. She's normally a little bit more put together and normally has more of an idea of what she's doing and maybe that's part of why she locks onto it so much is like she hasn't had a plan in a while and this is the first time when she's like oh I have a clear plan I have a clear vision of what needs to happen here so I don't know I guess I lost I lost the plot there too but <laughs> well I think when her friend or maybe it's her sister makes a comment of like your life isn't this really dire point right now and you're thinking if you just get back with Roger everything will be put into place. So, let's say you do make it to good old brilliant Roger in his affluent world of tech, then what? Uh, destiny fulfilled? He snaps his fingers and, and all your problems disappear and you end up years later someplace like this, everything in its right place? Your life is fucked and now you want Roger to come in and save you. She's in this very dire point in her life and is just so desperate to force this to happen. I really liked how in the beginning she's talking about these little things that Roger would do that almost seemed charming to her, like the retelling of the story and like the way that he sneezes. Oh yeah, the funniest way of telling stories about his past. Each time he retells one, it gets a little bigger, a little more dramatic. A little bigger, a little more dramatic. Like he was constantly workshopping them. He was trying to will the eventual story, the not real one, into something much better than the truth ever was. When they actually are back together again in the end, all of these things happen and she just seems like... They become very annoying to her. That's not how it happened. That's exactly how it happened. No, it's not. Yeah, everyone and I were just talking about it last week. No, you guys were older. You were like 14. But it's less interesting for the story if you're older. <laughs> I definitely noted the thing about Roger spinning the story because I was like, oh, that's what she's doing. She's doing that right then and there. She's spinning a story about Roger, making him seem more interesting. And when you finally meet him, you're like, yeah, this guy is kind of a dipshit. Like, you can tell right away that he's a dipshit. And she's still totally enamored with the idea of getting back together with him. But then slowly it dawns on her... I forget how long they're together before she bails on him again, but she's doing that thing that she is at first thinking back fondly on of him spinning a yarn and then decides that she hates that. I really liked the depiction of gig economy in L.A. And these are the people who aren't trying to be industry people. Most movies about L.A. are like, oh, we're all the industry people. It makes it seem like everybody who lives in L.A. is in the industry in some capacity. But it stands a reason that that's not true. And I like that there's someone who works from home and codes, like the Haley Joel Osment character. Then he hires people like Izzy to do random shit for him, and she's making money that way. And there's, like, a whole lot of caterers, you know? <laughs> I feel like that's a big thing. Like, that show Party Down is a pretty good depiction of 
catering life. Although a lot of them are aspiring actors, but still, whatever Elia Shawkat's deal is. That is very confusing. I basically love everything that that character says. Everything she says and does is funny. I don't understand what happened. She broke into her friend's house, but her boyfriend or whoever that guy is was in there. He was already inside and very strung out or something. I don't know, yeah. I'm not sure why he couldn't have let her in, why they had to go through a whole thing of... I mean, I guess we're in hot props now, so let's be be in hot props. Shut up. Hot props is on. Oh, shit, yeah. Like, what's up with that? Kyle Kinane, he's got some funny comedy. Oh, okay, I didn't know who that was. So yeah, I don't know what that deal is. It seems like maybe he texted her. She knew she had to stop at that house for some reason. But then she had to break into it, and he was already in there. Why couldn't he just have let her in if (laughs) there... plan was to whatever i don't know what they even stole from there and there was a picture of her with the people in the house so she's definitely robbing someone she knows yeah (laughs) weird i mean i guess it's like they know the person who lives there and that that person's away but i don't at all get what happened in that scene yeah hot prop number one for me she's just absolutely insane for blowing off lakeith stanfield And so cute, and obviously so interesting. He's a reader, and then she's blowing him off so she could go get back together with this sucky guy. She doesn't even get his number or anything, just in case. Like, get his number just in case. Right. You don't have to ever use it, but like... But when she leaves, she doesn't even know Roger's getting married yet. Doesn't she? I thought she found out when she's looking at her Instagram on the street when the... Oh, yeah, she's having a cigarette outside her house. That's right. Well, I guess she knows they're together. She sees the Providence thing as, like, a sign. And she'd already stolen that postcard, which is pretty weird. She just saw the postcard and stole it before she even felt it had any significance to her. That's a weird thing to do, to steal someone's postcard. Yes, he deserved better Definitely. So he probably dodged a bullet there. But she's insane for not getting some way of contacting him again because, oh my god. (laughs) He's so cute. And he's not even in the industry, so he probably doesn't have a lot of the normal L.A. baggage that he's you're going to get. He's probably just not superficial and a chill dude, you know? It's a chill well, dude who reads. This movie is about someone who's making bad decisions. Yes, <laughs> that is definitely a very bad decision. And his name is George, too, which is such a cute name. I didn't really have a lot of hot probs, but the fact that it's Christmas time just seems very arbitrary to me. There's just Christmas decorations, and she goes to a Christmas party. Christmas in LA, I guess it just looks like summertime. Yeah, I wrote that down as Christmas in LA must be so weird. Everything looks exactly the same except there are wreaths on doors and trees in people's houses. It's so strange. That might just be because they just had to shoot on location in 16 days and they didn't want to have to redress everyone's house and if there's trees up already, just shoot it as is, right? Like they can't really redress anybody's house. The movie is very low budget, and I think they spent most of the money on the actors, which is good. That's one of my favorite things about it, is just how indie it is. But it has this amazing cast. Yeah. That's just not something you normally see. And it would not have worked nearly as well if you'd just done, like, a random casting call, I think. It's not to say that there's not very talented, undiscovered actors, because there are, but a casting call is... (laughs) You'd see a lot of people who aren't very good, and it takes a long time to find the right people. So I was very curious about what happened there, and what happened was Papierniak 
knew he wanted Mackenzie Davis for that role, so he sent the script to her and didn't expect her to say yes, but she did say yes. And then after that, she kind of got everyone else on board because everyone else was like, oh yeah, I want to work with Mackenzie Davis, sure. And then the other thing was that they're shooting in LA and most of the people lived there and most of the people only had to do like a day on set. So it'd be like, we have Lakeith for a day or we have Rob Hubel for a day and it wasn't anything off their backs to just do a day where they played a character and got paid for it, you know, got paid scale. So I think that's very interesting and very fortunate for Pepperniak. Really lucky break for him. Yeah. <laughs> I hate it when people say this isn't like the movies. That's a pet peeve for me. <laughs> and that's in there. That's a hot prob. I really hate it. It's so cliche and no one says that either. No one's ever like, this isn't the movies. I feel like people say it the other way sometimes. Like, oh, this is like a movie or if this was in a movie or something. But like, my little hot prob is the whole scenario of she can take the bus. Like, come on. You're yeah. You get there and you have five hours. You can take the bus. Yeah, that's pretty elitist thing to say. <laughs> Take the fun of us. <laughs> and like, kind of tied with that is that the rush, like the countdown to the hours, and it's like the party's at five, but it doesn't end at five o one. You know, <laughs> I assume this party's gonna go on for a little while. You know, and it must be after five by the time she gets there because it's dark out. Yeah, but it is winter, so I don't know what time the sun sets in LA. And <laughs> it LA, sets pretty early here. I don't think no. it's dark at five o'clock in LA. Okay, so she's probably pretty late. I mean, that ties into my second biggest hot prop. That engagement party is not a wedding. Why does it matter that she even gets to the party? She could just call him and do her thing. Like, why does she have to be in front of him crashing his engagement party? Does she feel like that grand gesture is what will win him back? Why does she have to do that? Right, yeah, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. (laughs) Uh, That she can't call him or text him or something, but that she has to show up at the engagement party, not the wedding. Yeah, and they've already gotten engaged. It's not like she's stopping them from getting engaged either. The engagement happened. This is just to celebrate the engagement. Right. (laughs) So that's a little weird. I feel like he could have worked a little harder on the motivation there. But I get that he wanted to do, like, an adventure road movie sort of situation. I watched this with my husband, and his biggest problem was he thought all the little modes of transportation were dumb. He was not into that at all. The scooter part was a little funny. The scooter crash, it seemed like the parts were just very staged. Yeah, why did it fall apart like that? Would you really fall like that? Would it really look like that? I mean, she's only on that scooter for like two minutes. And he also hated that she stands up and she's right by her sister's house. He was really annoyed by that. But that's my favorite scene, so I'm glad that she made it to her sister's house. Because I love that whole situation. A lady on Hot Prob is that they didn't tune their guitars before they started playing. (laughs) Well, it take one second to... You don't even have to, like, make a thing out of it. Just show that they're doing that. You can't pick up a guitar and start playing it if it's been sitting against the wall. It doesn't work. That's a small Hot Prob. My Hot Prob in that scene at the end of it is, can her sister not give her a dress to put on or something? (laughs) Yeah, she lends her a car, but not an outfit. Right, and she's like, I'm good. (laughs) Yeah. That is a very good point. <laughs> you know, you have to keep wearing this. And then also I don't understand how her car is broken. Because <laughs> when she starts her car, tries to start her car at the mechanic, it, like, won't turn over and then one of her headlights pops up. And I get that, like, her car wasn't really that broken and it could have been fixed easily because then she sees the mechanic driving the car later. But it's definitely not working at that moment. Like, she tried to turn it on. It wasn't just him saying it's not working. How is that a way that cars can be broken? <laughs> The headlights just going up and down, like it's Herbie the Love Bug or something. (laughs) (laughs) Any more hot props, Christina? Yeah, no, I'm good.
Next call. There are like a million different ways that this movie shouldn't have worked. It's kind of like a magic trick in a way. It really is the cast is the glue, but it's like a super glue. It's not a glue stick. The cast is holding this shit together very well. It's pretty impressive. I'm still marveling at how he got all these amazing people. Like that Annie Potts scene is the best. If it weren't for that Axeman scene, the Annie Potts scene would be my favorite. Yeah, that was so good. And I loved her in Pretty in Pink. I thought she was the coolest lady ever. I don't know. I mean, part of me says just go and get it over with. And this other part of me says it's a stupid tradition. And what's the point? Well, you know, you could say that life itself is a stupid tradition. Don't analyze it. Just go. punk lady that owns a record store and in this one she's kind of like maybe that person but decades later you gotta like get just that same person she's like this old punk rock lady that saw Susie and the banshees at the palladium in the 80s and this this is what is known as the lost art form of the mixtape these are your great bands Susie Nabanchi. Oh, I saw her. You, you know, oh, I yeah. saw, I saw her at the Palladium in 1983. Stop. Yeah, changed my life. She's an artist, and she, I guess, has this lost love. I couldn't quite get the sense that, like, it was maybe like her first deep love that she had all of these memories from, and she's telling Izzy about them, and she's this character that is sort of living in the past, or maybe like she's done with that because she had thrown the box in the garbage, right? Izzy's trying to return it to her, I think, right? Yeah. She's talking about nostalgia. She's a little nostalgic, but also she's kind of done with it, as you said. You know that all of this will be a story that's told to somebody sometime. Maybe your children to theirs. We put off having kids and then it's too late, you know. Too old. And then it's over and the story just starts to disappear. And then, young love, the one that meant the most, it's just in that box. This is my box that I'm done with. I'm done with this chapter. I really like her. I love that she talks about the lost art form of the mixtape. <laughs> And then how they were stories we used to tell each other, she says. That's so great. And it's true. Like, you really did used to do that. I don't know if kids do that kind of thing anymore. You can make a playlist. You can make a a Spotify playlist or something. It's not quite as laborious. There was definitely, like, a lot of actual manual labor involved in making a mixtape. Yeah. I love how she talks about the order of the songs. That was like so important in a mixtape, how you start it out and progress it through. And when it's a tape, you kind of have to listen to the whole thing in order. Yeah. It's not easy to go click through to the other songs. So I just really liked how she's talking about how he would plan the sequence of the songs in the mixtape. Yeah, not just how it starts, but then also how you're going to end side one and start side two. And then you want to get it as close to filling the tape as possible. You don't want to have a lot of dead space at the end. I mean, I would sit down and add up running times of the songs to get that shit right. You don't have to do that on a playlist. You see, we used to use these. We used to use these to tell stories to each other. You know, we would uh, 
Now, Ethan, he's the, he's to start off, and the opening songs would always be like totally full of hope and optimism and everything. And you know, by the time he got to the end, it was like all about loss and sadness. It's so impressive the labor of love that went into the mixtape. She's absolutely right. It's definitely a lost start. It really is. And I love her house too. Her house is my favorite location. Because it's all that yellow, and then she's wearing this amazing blue sort of kimono-style dress. And then her painting has a lot of blue in it, too. And the blue and yellow combine together. And then the way the sun is coming in the window the whole time, it's really just a beautiful scene. I love the way it's shot, and I love the house that they're (laughs) they're in. One of my favorite details about Izzy is how she always mispronounces Liz Fields. Where are you headed? Huh? Uh, uh, Up in the hills, past Silver Lake and Los Feliz. Whatever. It's called a miracle mile. I don't know why they call it that. They just do. Okay, is it close to Los Feliz? Is it? Can I walk there? Even though people are constantly correcting her, I just like that as a detail of her being so oblivious to the outside world and to other people that she's like, I gotta get to Los Feliz. Oh, okay. Here's how you get to Los Feliz. Okay, I'm going to Los Feliz now. <laughs> say it Los Feliz, you know, but they say it Los Feliz for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, it's not correct. It's not correctly pronounced the Spanish word, but it's how they say it. I feel like every city has a thing that they pronounce weird, you know? Yeah. Like, it's like how Portland Couch Street is pronounced Cooch Street, like what? Yeah. Or like New York has Houston Street, even though it's not like Houston. Yeah, Houston. Houston. I don't know if we have one, though. The one that comes to mind for me in Austin is Guadalupe. Guadalupe, but it's Guadalupe. There's a lot of very butchered Spanish names in Austin. I'm like, it feels racist to say it this way, but that's how everyone says it. <laughs> okay. I also like how basically everywhere she goes, she like pushes her way through the door, especially Annie Potts and Haley Joel Osment are physically trying to. Like... <laughs> yeah, no one wants her to come in. <laughs> That's so interesting because in the end where Roger shows up at her door, she pushes the door at Roger when he's finally there and he pushes it in. Right. It's like, who are you kidding, man? You wanted to come in. I know, but it's like, you think it'll be like this romantic thing, but then she like falls on the floor. It's not this romantic comedy ending that you'd expect. And he picks her up and then drops her. Yeah, it's like an awkward reunion. I like that. It seems more of a movie thing than a real life thing that a man picks you up and carries you to the bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> That's not really a thing. I don't think so. I mean, maybe it's because I've never been like a petite woman and people want to pick up, but I've never been carried anywhere like that unless I've been injured. And even then, it's like, put your arm around me, not like I'll fireman carry or carry like a baby. <laughs> way to carry someone too even a baby is hard to carry that way (laughs) oh i like that there's a funny detail that ali shawkat i really love how she is talking about walt she's saying that guy blah 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 and izzy's like walt and she's like right uh and then really like immediately one second later she forgets his name again well come on there's meaning in that there's no meaning in the fact that i saw uh walt right yes so that i saw Walt. Walt. Yes, I saw fucking Walt. His photo on my Tinder feed. And I thought, he looks alright, so we decided to meet up. And then it turns out, he's just a grade A chicken shit. So I got wasted, 
and I passed out. I love her character so much. She was really great. She's so funny. I've already started underlining meaningful passages in her copy of Mopey Dick, if you know what I mean. When, I don't remember the name, her first friend, where she's staying, the one that's pregnant, and she says something about a time machine, putting use a time machine to go take a bullet for Lincoln. And you could go back in time, isn't that what she would do? Because he's like, okay, would that be like a time machine scenario or like a monkey's paw? Izzy, that catering job was a good fucking job. I, I stuck my neck out for you on that one. I know, okay, I know, I'm sorry. Is that why you're rummaging through my drawers for money? Okay. If time travel existed, I would make sure that never happened. That? Not like taking a bullet for Lincoln? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> what would that be? Like a, like a time machine scenario or more of a monkey's What's the money for? And then when that woman's husband is yelling at Izzy and he says something about people of her ilk, and she's like, what do you mean people of my ilk? Which I think she means like, do you mean white people? And he says, people of your ilk, i.e. assholes. Nobody says sweet anymore. It's just your people that talk like that. What do you mean, your people? Other people of your ilk, i.e. assholes. I like that. And then the thing that Walt says when he doesn't want them to leave, and he says, I was going to make poached eggs and cinnamon toast, and she, like, burps, and she's like, that does sound dope. No, I was, I was going to make us uh, poached eggs no. and cinnamon toast. Wow, that does sound dope. That does, and I really want to, but I really can't. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's go, girlfriend. Okay. Yeah. Man, I loved everything she said. And then when they have that conversation where she says, are most people living their dreams or are they, like, not turn out the way they thought? And her argument for why she thinks most people are living their dreams is Steven Spielberg. <laughs> God, the more and more I talk to people, the more that seems to be everyone's story. Really? Because, see, I'm starting to think it's the exact fucking opposite. And that there's a lot of people out there who are actually living exactly what they dreamed, right? Like Steven Spielberg, okay? The director? That fucker is definitely living the life he dreamed. Uh, yeah. That's a pretty extreme case, though. I mean, you don't, you don't think he's in the minority? I mean, he's a Jew, but, um... <laughs> I don't want to make this like a race issue or whatever. So. She's mostly got some good things to say, but she's like, no, here's people living their dreams. Like, yeah, and Spielberg and Barack Obama. Like, yeah. <laughs> all of that I thought was just so funny. She's like, I, I don't want to make this about You're right. Everything she says is perfectly delivered. She's so terrific. While we're on the subject, what about Barack and Obama, right? Like, boom, that guy is definitely living his dream. I mean, you don't think he's... Have gone further than he imagined? No, I think he knew exactly, exactly that he was going to be president. I mean, and he's black. I mean, you might as well say he's half white, but that's besides the point. He willed that shit to happen. So you just don't believe in fate? No, hell no, man. Then later, when Izzy's talking to her sister, explaining why she has to go stop this, and she says, This isn't how it ends and her sister says actually it seems to be exactly how it ends the party's starting soon i need to get there for what we're in love this isn't how it ends uh actually this seems to be exactly how it ends i need your help if you don't help me i won't get there in time will you please for once just fucking do that 
I think your time might be better spent meditating on the series of brilliant and impressive life choices you made to end up here looking like that without even $40 for health care. Fuck you. Fuck you. Choices? I like what her sister says, I'm not gonna wish you good luck. Let me see. I'm not gonna wish you good luck. No, no one in their right mind would. They have a very good sisterly rapport in the sense yeah. that it's believable to me that they're sisters. I'm gonna help you because you're my sister, but I'm gonna complain about it. I'm not gonna like it. I'm definitely gonna tell you that you're doing the wrong thing. And then Izzy says no one in their right mind would. I find that interesting because I feel like a part of her knows she's not doing the right thing, even though she's gonna do it anyway. So it does make you wonder how much of this whole thing is either theater or grasping at straws because she has nothing else to grasp at. I mean, I think she's just in general kind of a drama queen. It's like the breakup that she really should be dealing with is her sister. They were musicians together. I don't know if it's a band or whatever. And then her sister bailed on that. It seemed like they were going somewhere. You know, they played South by Southwest. And she just sort of has been flailing, has not been able to make her own solo career happen. And that's the real breakup. The Roger thing is a way to avoid dealing with that. I think that's true. I do wish they'd come back to that at the end rather than her just staying with her sister, come back to that relationship. I know they only had Carrie Coon for a day or something. So maybe he had something written and then he had to take it out because they couldn't get her for more than that. I mean, that's definitely the more interesting relationship. I can't get enough of Carrie Coon. I would just watch her all day long. <laughs> She's definitely one of my favorite working actresses. That scene of them singing the Axeman was so good. They don't get along at all, and then they, Carrie Coon's husband sort of like voiced this, you guys have to perform uh, at the party, and then it's like they're right back. Carrie Coon is getting really into it. You can see her like, they're both sort of like lit up when they're singing, and it's very bittersweet. Yeah, I mean, I love how they're basically having a conversation with their eyes. They're looking at each other the whole time, and I don't know if that's how they used to play. But normally, that's not how people play in a band. They don't. They look out at the audience. They don't stare intensely into each other's eyes the whole time they're playing. But I mean, I really love that they're having this conversation. like the idea that you hear about her career up until that point she's a musician blah 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 but you don't know how good she is and a lot of bad bands play south by southwest it's, like, it's not like everybody that's there is good and she's such a train wreck right like it's very plausible that she's not that talented and then you get to this party and she plays with her sister and it's like holy fuck <laughs> they actually are very good and it is a tragedy that they're not performing together anymore. Yeah, but, and also her friend's husband in the beginning who can't stand her. He says, I'm going to go after your sister left, you played a show. He's like, and it hangs me to say this. <laughs> right? it. Listen, you played the Mercury Lounge right after she quit. And as much as it pains me to say this with every fiber in my body, you killed it. Straight crushed it. Unfucking believable But you weren't this. Whatever this is. I wish you weren't so talented because I hate you. Like, I hate you. I don't want to say anything good about you. <laughs> yeah. When she sees her sister having sex through the window of her house with her husband's cousin, when she gets into the house, that scene with Carrie Coon's husband, Ron, I think Ron, 
Ralph Hubel. That was so intense. Her sister totally was like, oh, Izzy saw me having sex with your cousin through the window. And I think she just throws it out there knowing that Izzy, she's not an asshole. She's going to just lie and say, no, that was a joke. Are you really going to tell my husband that? Right. She calls her both so hard that she confesses before Izzy says anything, which is so great. I mean, it's a very good characterization scene for the two of them. Take me. Or I'll tell Bennett. Go ahead, he's right there. Bennett! Yeah, babe. Izzy has something to tell you. What's that? Izzy was sneaking around the side of the house and she saw me cheating on you, sleeping with another man. I don't get it. What's going on? Go on, Izzy. Tell him that's what you saw, right? No, Bennett, it was just a joke. It's a really fucked up joke. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, it's fucking dark. I guess that's funny. No, it wasn't. You're right. I should have thought it's real work. I love that they didn't have to have a whole conversation where it's like, remember when mom and dad, blah, blah, blah. Let's have a rehashing of the past sister thing. Like, it really speaks volumes about their relationship, that interaction that doesn't have any exposition in it at all. Oh, another Eskimo I had was the exchange between Izzy and Annie Potts where she asks, can I walk there? <laughs> Annie Potts says, well, you could, but it would be late. How late? Tomorrow. I just like that as like a geography joke, right? Everything is so far apart in LA and it's kind of amazing how sprawling it is. And even though she's lived there for a while, she seems to have just been living in her own little bubble and not really traveling outside of it. That's why she doesn't know how to pronounce anything and doesn't know how to get to places. And then I also really like Annie Potts' directions. It kind of reminds me of Fluid's directions in uh, True Romance. Go down Beechwood and drive a while and then you're gonna turn right, okay? And then you go and you keep driving and you keep driving. She goes, it's pretty much a straight shot, just a couple of twists and turns at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I know exactly how to get there now. And I like that Izzy, <laughs> Izzy's first email address was izzy69 at AOL.com. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone has such embarrassing AOL emails. <laughs> Oh, and I really love, I think this is like just a great characterization moment and I feel like it could have been improv by Rob Hubel because he's just an improv guy and it's so Rob Hubel and so funny was when Izzy walks in in this rumpled suit with the stains on it and he goes, that's a very cool jacket by the way. So psyched you're here. Virginia, did you say hello to your sister? I didn't. All right, I'm going to let you guys catch up. I'll be right back. That is a very cool jacket by the way. Like, he seriously thinks that that's how it's supposed to look. I love that. I kind of got the vibe that Rob Hubel did the invite, and she wasn't really invited to the party. Oh. Sister or something. Because she's like, AOL, I don't think anybody has that email or something like that. Right. Like, he thought he'd invited her to the party, but she clearly wasn't invited. She just showed up. Uh, like, she happened to be there. So she's just realizing, like, she's at this party that her sister didn't even invite her to. Yeah, you're probably right that that's how that happened. I did not hear from you. I didn't know you were coming. You right? Yeah. I sent it to you, man. I sent it to uh, Izzy69 at AOL. I, I, did you say AOL? Yeah. I don't think that's anyone's email anymore. Well, it didn't bounce back, so somebody definitely got it. My 
watched it at the time, I thought it just meant, like, that's how disconnected she is from them, that they don't have her current email, but knowing what we do know about her sister, it also seems very in character that her sister would be like, yeah, here's her email, knowing that it's not going to get to her, because she didn't want her there. She was definitely not happy to see her there. Right. It's interesting, too, how even though her sister has a seemingly put-together life, more than Izzy. She's still doing Izzy-like behavior, trying to blow up her life, you know? Yeah. Like, they have two kids together, at least, I assume, because he's like, play the kids' guitars, and they have these two guitars. So they have at least two kids, and her husband seems perfectly nice, but she's still fucking his cousin. (laughs) There's definitely some family traits they share. I liked the line about the bike shorts with the friend's husband, and she's like, my brain just murdered itself after I heard the word saddle fatigue. (laughs) Sweet shorts, Tom. I know you're being sarcastic, but the chamois on these shorts were precisely designed with multiple densities of foam to minimize saddle fatigue, and they were road-tested by Vincenzo Nibali himself. So yeah, they're pretty fucking sweet. Okay, sorry, my brain just murdered itself after I heard the word saddle fatigue. (laughs) That was really funny. I like that comeback, but I also really liked his little diatribe about the shorts. I thought that was, I mean, I thought everything he said was very funny. And I like how biker people are so into their bike shit, you know? (laughs) I mean, it's just like Scoot McNary's character and touchy-feely, right? Like, don't get me started about all my bike shit. (laughs) I really think a lot about it. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, my husband pointed it out. He said this is kind of like a Lynn Shelton-esque. Lynn Shelton is to Seattle as this movie is to L.A. Lynn Shelton's movies aren't the Seattle you normally see, not the cinematic Seattle. They're like the real Seattle, and this has a lot of real L.A. feel to it. I love Billy Joe Osment when he is introduced, and they're arguing about whether he's a satisfied TaskRabbit customer, and he's saying, you're supposed to write a breakup note for me to break up with my girlfriend, and we haven't broken up. I don't have anything. Come on, man. Everyone's got something, and you, especially, are someone that generally, I mean this in the best possible way, needs like a lot done for them. I asked you to write a breakup letter for my girlfriend. I did, and you loved it. It didn't work. She's still my girlfriend. Look, the website's a satisfaction guarantee. I'm not satisfied. You were when I handed it in. Because I thought it would work. You know what, Walt? Not to split hairs here, but that really has more to do with her satisfaction than yours. And those snickerdoodles you baked for my book club, they went stale the next day. You the fridge, didn't you? I told you that would ruin them. Fridge keeps things safe. And she's like, you're supposed to put them in the fridge, and... No, you weren't supposed to put them in the fridge. I thought that was so funny. <laughs> That was, like, kind of triggering for me as a baker. Like, if you want to get the moisture out of something, put it in the fridge. When she sees her ex-best friend after she's just leaving the engagement party, her friend walks out, and Izzy turns around, and she's like, I'd say this is a pleasant surprise, but I'm not surprised, and this is far from pleasant. (laughs) Yeah. I'd say this was a pleasant surprise, but of course, I'm not surprised, and this is Far from pleasant. Those are my Eskimos. It seems like Roger and whatever her friend's name is are a good match. I don't know. They seem very similar. Oh, and one more. Clearly you overestimate how much I care about my dignity. Percy, how are you? Let's try not to make a scene, shall we? I think it's best for everyone if you come to your senses and leave quietly with your dignity intact. Clearly you overestimate how much I care about my dignity. You help me escort her first. I feel like that speaks volumes about Izzy as a person. What else does a suicide need, huh? Are we ready for our lunchtime polls? Yeah. So this is what's called a lunchtime poll. The lunchtime poll today seems 
appropriate to have us tell a story of an epic journey we went on, preferably fraught with disaster, but it doesn't have to be. Let's hear it, Amy. Okay. Fifteen years ago, Rich, my ex-husband and I, we did a big trip to Europe, and we were in Spain. There was a little portion of this trip where we rented a car, and we were staying in like a small beach town in Spain. And the next place we were going to from there was Barcelona. The small town was San Sebastian. We were driving from San Sebastian to Barcelona. And we had a hotel that we were going to stay in in Barcelona. A couple days after that, we were going to fly, I think, to Prague. So our plan was we'll hold on to the rental car at the hotel and then drive it to the airport and return it then. So we drive to Barcelona. It's like maybe like a three-hour drive from where we were. And so Barcelona is like split in half. There's a huge diagonal that runs through the middle of it. And north of the diagonal, it's all this perfectly gridded city. The other side of the diagonal, it's a mess. It's like a total maze called Las Ramblas. This is the days before GPS, before smartphones. So all we had, we had a, a Spain for Dummies book. And it had one page of it as a street map of Barcelona. If our hotel had been in the gridded part, we would have just driven right to it, parked it, everything would be fine. But our hotel was in the other part. We get there, it's like four o'clock. We just like got a snack on the way, so it was like, oh, yeah, you know, we're almost here. We'll park the car and then maybe go get an early dinner or something. So we can see on the map, like there's this huge roundabout with eight different turnoffs. Let's say it's like A, B, C, D, and our hotel is on C. You know, so it's like we're going through the roundabout. Right? There's A, there's B, there's D. Wait, where? what happened to ours? <laughs> where, where was it, right? We go through this roundabout like over and over again. We keep seeing like all the streets that are supposed to be there, except the one that ours is on. Like maybe we can't get there from there. At some point in this, somebody hit us with a motorcycle. It was like not even relevant to the story. It ended up being like we forgot about it. You know, it just like rear-ended. I don't think it did any damage. No one got out. Let's try and make our way there some other way. And, you know, trying to see it on the map. It's just like a total mess. Like we're driving around forever. And then we feel like we're near it. But we can't see it. At this point, I was driving. I think we had traded at some point. But I was like, I'm so sick of driving. Like, so let's swap. So he's like all fresh. He hasn't been driving for like hours and we still can't find him. We're like, you know what? All right, let's pull in. We see a parking garage. Let's pull into this parking garage. I know we're near the hotel. So we'll just park in the car, get out and find it. But he had just started driving. So he wasn't even like sick of driving. He pulls into this parking garage and it's so narrow. It's like there's this narrow bay of parking spots that are all taken. There's not room to turn around or anything. So he pulls through it and turns to go up a level. And then to go up a level, it's like, first of all, this super sharp turn, mm -hmm. and then this very steep ramp that's also incredibly narrow. And at the top of it, another sharp turn. Like, it's like, you know, and you rent a car in Europe, it's a stick shift, so it's so hard. It was like the hardest thing to do. It's like, you know, like, oh my God. like get off the ramp. <laughs> it was like practically crying. <laughs> He's like, fuck this, and he's just like, puts the car in reverse. <laughs> You're not gonna reverse it. 
down this ramp. So he manages, there's like not a spot, but something where you can kind of pull into. So he manages to get into that just so he can turn the car around. I'm like, Struts even just think about it. It was like the most difficult driving maneuver you ever had to do. So now we're still in the same situation. That didn't work out. He pulls up, there's this lady standing there and he shows her the address, shows her on the map. And she took the book and she's talking. He just knows like Dora Spanish, you know, like mm -hmm. I can speak decent Spanish. And she just keeps talking on and on. And I feel like what she's saying is, this is where it is, but it's one way you have to get there from the bottom. She keeps saying like from the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I kind of got the gist of what she's saying. And I'm like, all right, all right, like, <laughs> let's go. And she keeps talking and talking, but she's holding her book, you know, so we can't just drive away. <laughs> <laughs> so finally she gives it back. This does not work out though. We can't find it. We're like losing our minds. So then I'm like, you know what? We don't need this car in Barcelona. And I have the packet from the rental car company that has a list of their offices in Barcelona. So I'm like, all right, let's just find one of these. Let's just return the car and take a cab to the hotel. So we find one of the addresses on the map. It's in the easier area mm -hmm. to drive. And so we pull up to what I think is the address. It's this huge mall kind of, and like, it's not clear whether it's actually in there and to pull in it's like a parking garage like a specific place where you have to take a ticket just to get in you know i don't want to pull in here if this is wrong so we pull in i get out of the car and i ask a garage attendant who ended up being the hero of this story <laughs> so i'm talking to him and i can speak decent spanish but i don't know how to say rental car but i'm like is there an avis here we want to return the car at the office at the Avis office, and he's looking at me, he's like a little confused. And then Rich faces the horn and holds up uh, the thing from Avis with the logo. And the guy's like, oh, Avis! <laughs> and then he just knows everything. He's like, there used to be an Avis here, it's not here, but there's one at a train station that is nearby. To this day, I remember the name of the station because he drilled it in my head. He's like, Estacion Renfe. Estacion Renfe. <laughs> and the, someone's like honking his horn at him. So this guy, the Superman guy, he gives me the exact directions to where Avis is. He gets out of his booth, directs traffic so that we can back out. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we go and even that was a pain getting into this train station. It's like a thing where there's a strip of rental car offices and some of them are outside, some of them you have to go through some gate. We still finally, finally managed to get, by this point it was like eight o'clock. Oh, <laughs> at four, we were like, let's have an early dinner. Right. You know? We finally get there, we return the car, we get all our stuff, we go to get into a cab. There's a, some warning in our Spain book that's like cab drivers can try and rip you off. So like before we get it, we're just like, you know, like how much is this gonna cost? Mm -hmm. And the guy's like, and go like it's like five bucks yeah okay let's go so we get in the cab we give him the address he goes you know that giant roundabout that we had gone through a million times you know he goes through he just pulls up to the side and it's like a promenade and he's like okay you can't drive on the street but it's right there oh no <laughs> it's like 30 feet away from where we had driven past like 100 times Oh my god. So we didn't know that it was on a street that you couldn't drive on. So. Yeah. Why would you assume that? Yeah. <laughs> that is very epic. Do you want to go, Christina? Yeah, mine's from 2000, and I was 21, and I was studying abroad in France. 
We lived with host families, all the students did. We were from colleges across the country, and it was kind of a small school. They gave us a winter break, like a week off. And so a lot of the students decided they would go on vacation together. And with a couple of kids in my class, like we had a group of six that we were going to go to, we were actually going to go to Spain. (laughs) So like we get train tickets all together, but the train left at 11 p.m. and we didn't have assigned seats. It's like late at night and everybody on the train is sleeping and we have to go multiple cars down. So our group split up and we weren't all in the same train car and we didn't know this, but in the middle of the trip, the train split in half. And so like one half of the train (laughs) went further into Spain and then the other half of the train went somewhere else. The train stopped. This girl from my class, who I didn't know, is like running through the cars, and then she said, Christina, they're gone. Four of the people that we were going to be on the trip with to Spain, they weren't there. So it was just me and Sarah, this girl. I literally just knew her name. We called our host families. We didn't have cell phones. We called our host families, letting our host parents like, we're okay, we just don't know where our friends are. We were at this train station that we were told, if you're coming from Provence, you have to go through this station to get to Spain. So we're like, okay, we'll stay here because they have to come through here if they want to go to Spain. We stayed in this train station for 10 hours and we were just eating like Snicker bars and chips from the vending machine and just waiting for them to show up and they never showed up. We didn't even know. We were just sort of like people that tagged onto this Spain trip with some (laughs) other classmates. We didn't have a plan. After 10 hours, we just decided, okay, let's go find a hotel and take a shower. We just decided, okay, where do you want to go in Spain? (laughs) And we just planned this whole trip, just me and Sarah. So I spent a week with her and we became really close friends, but I didn't really know her at all before, but we ended up having a fun vacation together. We took a boat to Ibiza and we saw that and rented mopeds there and It was really fun. We went to Valencia, I think. It was quite an adventure. It was just like a really crazy trip. (laughs) It did not turn out how we thought it would. We ended up seeing our friends back at school. Like, we couldn't find you. We were waiting so long. And if we had cell phones, this wouldn't have happened. (laughs) What happened to them? Kind of the craziest journey I've ever been on. Did you ever find out what happened to them? Their train had split, and then we... Because we had waited at the one station, but we never saw them. So I didn't know exactly how they got into Spain or maybe they, yeah, I don't remember. But it was really scary at first. They were on the wrong half of the train? I don't know. We didn't know that that happened. We thought the whole train was going to go to the same place, but that was not the case. (laughs) You would think. (laughs) Yeah. That's not the craziest thing to think. Like, you can't drive on every street and trains split in half. The whole train doesn't go there, come on. I know. It was so crazy. (laughs) Jessica, did your story take place in Spain as well? It doesn't. No. (laughs) Well, we're back in the good old U.S. of A. (laughs) Austin 2006 is my first time going to South by Southwest. I was... 
seeing someone else at the time. He didn't want to go, so we went with my friend Jacob and my now husband. We got our reservations a little bit on the later side, hotel reservations. So we were staying at a Super 8 up the highway. So we had to take the bus into town or walk into town. It was like a two-mile walk, which is not that bad, but Austin's not the most walkable city, as we're about to find out. So... But we always insist on walking. It's so funny. It's like even their public transportation is like, I'll never forget how we were waiting for this bus for a long time. It seemed like it was going to head into downtown. Finally, a bus came and we asked the bus driver where the bus went. And she's like, no, I actually turn before we get into downtown. And then the bus driver suggested that we take a cab. This is the kind of city where the bus driver tells you not to take the bus. (laughs) So my friend Jacob made a bit more money than us. So he was kind of like a money is no object in this situation, but also like we didn't know how booked up hotels in Austin got at the time because it was our first time there for South By. And so he was like, he had it in his head and we had kind of a free evening. I'm just gonna walk around and walk into hotels and ask if they have any rooms available. And if they do, I'll book one and then we can just move our stuff. So we're just walking like away from downtown. We're like, oh, if we walk away from downtown, maybe it's more likely to find a hotel. So we're like, we walk over the bridge and we're just walking into random hotels. Of course, they're all booked up. But again, this is before smartphones, right? This is 2006. I had a flip phone. We had a map of Austin, but it's mostly downtown, right? It doesn't have the outskirts. So we're walking, and we somehow get into this. I forget how, because we also were drinking this whole time. So there's a thing about Austin is that there's lots of cheap and free booze, especially with South By. Somehow we're lost, and... We can't find a cab. And then we got into a thing where we start walking up a street and then there's no turns. And we've already walked a long way on the street. We don't want to turn around and go back because where we came from, we couldn't find a cab. We don't want to keep going. We don't want to get too far away. We've just been walking for such a long time. We're like in a neighborhood, basically. And there are these people who are out on their driveway, sitting in their truck in the driveway, drinking beer. And they're like, hey, what are you guys doing? Because we're walking by, like, holding a map, and we're just, like, looking very lost. We're not from here. We were looking for hotels, but we gave up, but now we just want to get back to our regular hotel, which is the Super 8 on the other side of town, like, through downtown, back up the road. So, like, the guy's not going to offer to give us a ride, even though they're very nice. And he's like, well, I'll give you a beer and try to give you directions back to the main road. (laughs) We weren't understanding them at all. So he's finally like, okay, I'll give you a ride to a road where you can get a cab. So he did, he drove us, and it was like a long way. We were just so far up there in this neighborhood and there was nowhere to turn. He just drove us this long way back down to the main road and we were able to get a cab. God, rideshare apps are the best. Cause it used to be you'd call a cab and then they'd be like, we'll be there in 20 minutes. And then sometimes they wouldn't be there in 20 minutes. And then you call again and then they'd be like, we'll be there in 20 minutes. And that could just go on and on for a while. And then the other thing I remembered was that during this walk, my mom called me and she didn't know that I was in Austin so then she was mad at me for not telling her that I'd gone to Austin. She just kept talking and talking and she was already mad at me and then somehow it came up something about God and I told her I was like the first time that I told her I was an atheist and she was so mad about it. She was like this is because of your father isn't it? He made you an atheist and I was like nope happened totally independently of that and she was, I just remember like having this big fight with my mom while we're fucking lost in (laughs) the neighborhood in Austin. 
And so finally, yeah, we finally got a cab back home. We were very tired. And I don't know if it was the same trip or a separate trip to Austin where because that guy was so nice and gave us a ride and gave us a beer, it was so cool. We were like, oh, yeah, people in Austin are just really cool. This guy who was at a show was like, oh, do you guys want to ride back to your hotel? Because, again, we were staying. We always end up staying at these shitty Super 8s up the road. And he's like, I have a truck. I'll take you guys back. So we're like, okay, we'll get in the car. And it, also our friend Justin was there. And then our friend Cherry, who lives outside Austin, she was there. She was, like, crashing on her hotel floor. So we got in this guy's car or truck or something. I think it was a truck. There was enough seating for us all, though. We're like, this is not the way to our hotel. He's driving the opposite direction. He's like, yeah, I know. I just need to go to my house for something real quick. And we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so he drives to his house. He pulls in the driveway. He's like, you guys want to come in for a beer or anything? And we're like, no, we'd really just like to get back to our hotel. So we'll just wait here in the car. He goes in the house. He never comes back out. <laughs> and then Cherry's like, I have to pee. And we're like, okay, well, we'll go with you. Like, we're not going to let you go in by yourself. And we go in, and the guy's just sitting on his couch drinking a beer. And we're like, uh, we're going to use your bathroom, and then I think we're going to just go. And he's like, are you sure? I'll give you a ride back. Just have a beer. He just kept, like, really wanting us to, like, stay and have a beer. And we're, like, getting major serial killer vibes from this guy. <laughs> so cherry peas, and then we're just out of there. And then we called the cab. And again, it was another thing where it took a really long time for a cab to actually show up. But that's what Austin is like. Pre-smartphone. Now this would never happen. It's funny how all of our stories would be easily thwarted now by opening our map app or opening a ride share app we're alive and we didn't get serial killed how very let's see i have one fun fact which is that the woman who plays izzy's friend who she's crashing with is the wife of pepiniac and also she produced the movie reluctantly apparently i read an interview where she was like i said i didn't want to produce it but then i ended up making all these calls and doing all this work and i was talking to a friend and the friend was like guess what you're producing the movie <laughs> <laughs> so she was like, oh yeah, give me credit for that. I thought that was kind of funny. Was she really pregnant? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's my only fun fact, though. Other than the fact that Corinne Tucker was all gung-ho about letting them use her song. The song they play is Axeman by Heavens to Betsy, which is Slater Kinney's Corinne Tucker's first band. He wrote that into the script, that particular song. He was like, it's got to be this song. They say never do that, <laughs> right? Never, like, hinge your entire movie on a song that you might not be able to get the rights to. Really, this guy got so lucky in so many ways. It's amazing. But Corinne liked the script, and she was like, yeah, you can use it. And so they got it. I loved all the music in it. And Courtney Barnett was in it, too. I loved her song. Yeah, the soundtrack kicks ass. Yeah. And I like how the look of the movie matches the gritty sound of all the bands that Last episode of season three, though. <laughs> we did it. We did a whole season in quarantine. All right, yeah. That's awesome. It is awesome. I mean, we really plowed through it more than we normally would because. I guess because we just kind of wanted something to look forward to. I definitely, yeah. I love being able to do this every week. It's really helped me at this yeah. time. 
three seasons. That means, like, we're 30 episodes in, basically. Well, they're 28, because the first season was eight episodes. But that's still quite a lot. Oh, wow, yeah. Considering this isn't, like, our job or anything. (laughs) (laughs) Although, if anyone's listening and wants to uh, give us money, wouldn't say no. Wouldn't say no to money. (laughs) 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 I'll read some ad copy. I don't care. Feminine products or mattresses or whatever. Just putting that out there. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not above selling out. Uh, but yeah, this has been fun. Closing remarks about season three. <laughs> nope. nope. Okay. Keep on staying healthy, everybody. <laughs> Hopefully we'll all be in the same room again when season four starts. I think we are soon going to be allowed to have up to five people together. So. Oh, yeah. So us and a guest would be totally okay. Cool, cool, cool. Bye, everybody. This concludes Series 3 of Paid and Puke. Paid and Puke will return in Fall 2020 with Series 4. See you soon. If you enjoyed this episode of Paid and Puke, please take a minute to rate us highly on your preferred podcast listening apparatus. If you did not enjoy this episode, no further action is necessary. Paid and Puke is hosted by Amy Green, Christina Barr, and Jessica Baxter. Music by Silent Partner. Follow us on Twitter at Paid and Puke Pod, or join us on Facebook at Paid and Puke Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm out of my head, I'm out of my mind, I'm out of my life tonight I'm going out there and I'm going fast and I'm going hard I'm going crazy, do you want to watch, do you want to come? I'm out of my head, I'm out of my mind, I'm out of my life
baby. Ve. 